Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all viewers from all around the world. Welcome to the Humanizing Growth series brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. At the Institute, it's our purpose to help leaders drive more humanized growth by connecting them to peers, best practices, and experts. And that's exactly what we're going to do in the next hour. My name is Frank van Andriest, and I am uh, extremely proud to uh, welcome as a guest today, Angela Ahrens, former CEO at Burberry, SVP of retail and online at Apple, currently chairing Save the Children and is on the board of Airbnb and the world's largest marketing conglomerate, WPP. A very warm welcome, Angela. Let me ask you first, where are you? And in one word, how do you feel? Well, I'm currently in the heart of America. I'm in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, arrived early, early this morning. So I won't tell you how I feel in this moment in terms of how I feel in general in life. Grateful. Grateful. Very grateful. Grateful for my health and my family and my friends and just grateful for the people I get to work with, the things I get to do, for my happiness, for just grateful. I mean, I wake up every morning grateful. Well, that's, that's, that's super motivating to hear, Angela, really great. So let's start with your journey. You grew up in New Palestine, Indiana, right? I did, tiny farm town. And then you moved uh, to New York to, uh, to work in fashion. And after stints at brands like Donna Karan and Liz Claiborne, you moved to London to join Burberry. That is 2006, if I'm correct. And then in 2014, you moved from London to California to join Apple. So from, from Indiana to Burberry's in London to Apple in California, did the teenager, Angela, had a sense that she would be working for brands like Burberry's and Apple? No, it's funny. Once I, was, once I left university and I was at the airport getting ready to, to move to New York, my mother um, and my father, I was the first of six that was actually, were actually leaving. And, and, you know, and New York was somewhere they'd never been and far away for a young girl from Indiana. Yeah. And my mom said, well, when will you be back? And just instinctively, I said, when I become the president of Donna Karen, mom, then I'll, then I'll know that I've made it and I'll come home. Oh. And so literally fast forward, I don't know, 13, 15 years and that happened. And my mother called me and said, so are you coming home now? And I'm like, <laughs> so, so no, I think when you're young, you, you, you have a dream. And then somewhere along the way, you know, that dream becomes bigger and you become a part of that dream and you don't, you know, your life takes on a life of its own. So no, I, no, I didn't dream as, as big or as blessed as my life has become. And, and did you have like a sense of purpose? as a young girl? Yeah, you know, I was raised with a sense of purpose. I think that when you're, you know, there's certain countries or certain counties or certain places that you're from. And when you're from a very big family in the heart of the Midwest, it's um, very family, very values, very, you know, I lived in a little neighborhood where there was a church on each end of the street. And, you know, every summer, the big picnic tables would line the street and you would have all the you know, all of the pitch-in dinners as the sun would set. And so life was about people. Life was about giving and caring and loving. And it, 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 it's just, you know, I mean, my, my parents would always say, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. My dad used to always say, you need to give 60 and take 40, and then you'll really be happy. And I mean, I, I was raised with all of this in my head and my mind. And so yeah, I mean, those were, that was the type of family that, that I was from. So purpose, I always called it my Midwestern core values. Yeah, it's embedded. It's in my DNA. Using Brilliant. it in as I didn't know the power of, but, but I, I, I had a purpose. 
And those values that Indiana, is that still, still in you now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, like I said, when it's in your, when it's in your DNA, I mean, it's no different than speaking English or when you, when it is so ingrained in you just, and my dad used to always say too, he said, I could teach you anything, but I can't teach you to care. And so, you know, they used to talk about caring and does that break your heart? And if it breaks your heart, then do something about it. I mean, you know, these were, these were conversations. This was life. I mean, probably my favorite father's quote was he used to always say that he would know he did a job if we looked at a photo and we saw ourselves last. Like, try that, right? That's a nice one. That's a nice one. So what was the first time going from, you know, from Indiana to New York to London to the West Coast? What was the first time you realized that you could make an impact on a global scale? I think I, I think you 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 learned so much along the way. I was so fortunate when I worked in New York. Yes, the corporation was Liz Claiborne or LCI, but we acquired um, five to six small companies a year. So we acquired Juicy Couture from Pam and Gila, and we'd buy it at 50, 60 million, write a business plan to get it to a billion in five years. You know, and then we'd buy another one. We bought Lucky Brand. We bought, you know, all of these. So one year we bought five tiny West Coast brands. And when you work with founders, visionary founders that have a dream, and you're with this big corporation that's operationally geared, you learn, and I'm very right brain, left brain anyway, but it was the perfect role for me because you, you get to work with so many visionaries, but then you also need to you know, rapidly scale their business and, and, and let them focus on what they're brilliant at. So you, I, I learned a lot and dealing with complexity and, and, and you know, taking these businesses international, et cetera, and building teams of people that were culturally compatible with them in order to make them successful, because it is all about people and all about teams and, and putting people in place that they trusted, like they had to trust me. You know, I was their partner, then we had to together build an amazing team for them or getting to that billion would never happen. And so I learned a tremendous amount there for a lot of years. And then when I got the call to Burberry, I actually turned it down at first because I thought it would be boring. I thought it would be too narrow, like a single brand. I'm dealing with 22 brands and incredible founders, et cetera. So I, I really loved what I was doing in New York. But Burberry ended up being much, much more complex. I mean, than I ever possibly, it was a federation of, you know, multiple businesses that weren't owned, et cetera. But before you knew that, you said, yes, because I, I, the complexity you learned while you were there. What made you say yes before you knew how actually complex Burberry's was? I'm, I am loyal to a fault. And, and that's in almost any relationship because I believe that trust and love and, and so I loved my team and I loved the founders. I loved my job in New York. And, and I had three children under the age of 10 and I finally had work-life balance and, and I loved my boss and everything was perfect. And so, so I said no a few times over the course of a year because I, I didn't dream it could get any better than what I had. I mean, I, I just was so fulfilled and learning and growing, et cetera. And then one day um, my predecessor calls up and I think was kind of disappointed that I had you know, declined the offer. And she got kind of aggravated at me and said, do you not understand how few women CEO jobs there are in the world? <laughs> I think there were like you know, three at that point. And she said, you know, just, just think about that. And you have an opportunity. This isn't just Burberry. This is bigger than that. This is, you know, and so she, she put a whole different angle in my head. Yeah. And, and I felt almost a greater responsibility, you know, to, and, and that, was the, that was the catalyst. That was the turning point. And that wasn't for ego. It was more just if you did it and if you were successful, that would empower more women. And that would, that would help more companies understand that there should be many more women CEOs, et cetera. So I don't think I've ever said that, but, but that was the catalyst. You, you mentioned working with a lot of visionaries in, uh, in New York before going to uh, Burberry's. How many visionaries on one ship? I mean, how does that work? Is there, because you're a visionary leader, right? 
and then you work with all these people with their vision. How many visionaries can you have together, together and still be effective? Well, I think it's a great question, but I think when you're a conglomerate, like LCI was at that point, you know, one of the businesses we bought also was Mex, which is a, a Dutch firm. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, Ratan Chada and Adu Advani. And, 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 they, and Ratan is a visionary. I mean, he's, but it was his business. Yeah. So I was the conduit. And, and because, so I, he, they had such a clear vision. They were unbelievable. So my, I was told that my job was to protect them from the big corporation. But, but then it was to find those links so that we could plug in and make them more efficient and make them you know, stronger, more prepared to scale, et cetera. But, but in a, I never felt it was the corporation's job. You were buying their vision and yeah. you were buying them to execute their vision. But hopefully, one plus one plugged together would get you to four, five, six, et cetera. And so, so to me, in a, in a federation, in a Unilever, a P&G, any big conglomerate, I think every brand needs a visionary. WPP, every company needs that chief creative. And then, of course, you need a great CEO and a great CFO. But I think that you need an incredible um, creative in any company today because they're the ones with the instincts that can look around the corners and, and, and warn everyone what's coming and how you have to pivot and evolve, et cetera. But without that, that creative having a seat at the table, I fear that, that brands won't keep pace and companies won't keep pace. And especially, I, I guess, uh, I worked sometimes with uh, Kelvin Klein and I saw that the role in fashion of the creative director is, is almost total. And, uh, and, and so you have a strong background in, uh, in fashion. Then working with a company like Apple, with obviously a very visionary founder, but also Joni uh, Ivey, very visionary. Uh, you've got a bunch of people with strong vision. What is, what is let's say, your approach in working with these people and, and keeping them in their strength, while at the same time also pursuing the vision that you have? I think probably the most important, it's not a gift, but I think the most important is listening. And I, I've always said, you have to look backwards before you can ever look forward. So, so take Burberry as an example. I mean, I started and it was their 150th anniversary. You look back, why did, why did he found the company? When was the check founded? What was the purpose of it? I mean, so you do all of your homework all the way up to now. Now Christopher Bailey's in there. What's your vision? What do you see, right? Then you have your offsite with your 100 executives. And, and what is our purpose? Why are we doing this? And, and we came out of it saying the company's been around 150 years. Why are we doing this? Because we're going to be here for this next, let's say, 10 years. And our job is to keep this institution strong, relevant, so that it can last for another 150 years. And that just lifted everyone up and united them around something bigger, something. And it's no different. You go into Apple, you watch and read everything that Steve did. Why did Steve create retail? Right. Why didn't he get anyone commission? Why? He told them their job was to tell customers things they didn't know. The, it, the sales team's job was to educate customers on the products. And and he said their job was to enrich lives. I mean, he told all of the original teams that he hired in those, for, and that just, so education, enrich lives. Okay, now Johnny, what do you see in these stores? And Johnny introduced me to Foster's and okay, so we look back, why are we doing this? So maybe we're supposed to continue to educate, continue to enrich lives, then how do we create an experience to make sure we're doing that. And in a data-driven world, how do we now start to measure those qualitative things that no one's ever tried to measure before? So this is, but it's, to me, it's listening and feeling and, and you know, connecting the dots. You know, I, I mean, I, I've always said, I'm a marketer at heart. I've never been a CMO, but, but my degree, everything is in marketing. And I, you know, Burberry, it, I, I have a marketing lens on everything. And I think as a marketer, your job is to connect the dots. 
between the history, the purpose, um, you know, the customer, the culture. I mean, it's, it's connecting so that this thing, this, you know, I don't really like the word brand, but this company, this institution, you know, these are living, breathing, powerful things that, that, that make an impact. And as a CMO, I mean, you're right in the center of that. And it's your job to connect all of those dots. And that's really that all that I've done is connect the history, dream and, and have a vision for the future, but not just me, always with the senior team, everyone united deciding, but, but you have to keep the DNA, you've got to keep the thread and as you start, as you, as you refine and evolve the purpose. Yeah, there, there seems to be almost like a formula in what you say. Yeah, you, you mentioned very much it starts with the values, it starts with trust. Then you mentioned even going back to Indiana where you were raised, it was about human beings and about real connection that obviously starts with listening. There's actually a great book called Listening is an Act of Love, which I think is actually true. I think it is an act of love. And, and then collaborating, effectively collaborating, because, because that's... I think what you really excel at, it's working with these absolute great visionaries and leaders and personalities, but in somehow or another indeed manage to get the best out of them for vision, for the purpose. So we're, we're at the end of the Apple stint. What was the highlight until then? Hmm. Yeah, probably the, I mean, probably the two biggest highlights were, were absolutely the turnaround of Burberry and, and, you know, the powerful team that we put together and, and not only the fact that we doubled the business in five years, but the fact that we had just told the board we would do it again, literally short, you know, shortly before I left to go to Apple. So, I mean, you know, when you, when you unite a team and you, you know, and that, that team is just going 80 miles an hour, it just, it, it's such an incredible, you, you, you can accomplish anything. And that's just such a beautiful, wonderful feeling. And, and, uh, and, that, and, and that, you know, when I say double the business, but we put 1% of our profits into the Burberry Foundation. And so we were also impacting children's lives. You know, we, we had a tagline at Burberry and we said, how many lives can we touch and transform by the power of our performance? And that, that underpinned, you know, we had five soft strategies and we said those soft strategies enable the hard strategies enabled the revenue and the profit, et cetera. But it was those soft strategies that created the culture and united the team. So that energy, I learned a lot. I learned a tremendous amount at Burberry. When you're put in a position, you are 100% accountable, right? There's, there's no, there's, you know, there's nobody. And I read all the, all the probabilities of success and how many CEOs fail in year one, year two, year three, and, you know, so you just, you go in so focused, just head down and, and the team we were able to build and what we collectively were able to achieve was just, and I learned so much leadership and energy. And, and I had done things before. I think Burberry was just a culmination of everything coming together and, and you being a hundred percent accountable. But I also learned that I learned ironically that the more authentic I was, the more they leaned in. The more vulnerable I was in 2008 when, you know, the world is collapsing and, you know, and we're in the middle of building a new headquarters and, you know, we called the top 100 together. And I said, you know, we're going to have to decide what, you know, what we stop, what we, you know, basically we need to cut 50 million pounds out of the business over the course of the next three to four months. I mean, you know, Armageddon was happening and, and I got teary eyed and I, and I said, look, I've never done this before but I know we can do this. And our goal is to come out stronger. So let's agree. We don't want to cut anything consumer facing, but I was, I was vulnerable. I was hurting and they leaned in even more. And I learned these, you, these lessons that unless you go through those things, you don't learn. And, and a lot of them were contradictory to maybe what I had thought. So. But it's interesting because you say, you say two things on the one hand, you had like a very strong you took a very strong position. We're not going to cut on the consumer side. And at the other side, you were being vulnerable and, and softer, if you will. So very hard on the vision and soft on the, on the connection. I can see how that's a real powerful mix. I mean, this is a fantastic highlight. I can totally relate to why you would feel also great about what you achieved there. 
what on earth did, did Tim Cook tell you that you left it all behind? I think you even had to leave your children in London, right? Uh, and, and then move all the way to the West Coast. Well, and, and do realize that I was coming up on year 10 at Burberry. You know, and it's funny, I, I've always said that after 10 years, do you lose your objectivity? It's a, it's a tricky timing. And so I was coming up on year 10, different people had called, et cetera. So I, when I finally ended up meeting with Tim, um, I will tell you a couple of things is one, he's an incredible human and he is, he's a very deep man and he's a man of peace. And I felt that immediately. I felt a very natural connection. I mean, he's uh, for the size of that job and what he does, he is, um, he's an incredible human. But that said, I had a great job and an amazing team and we were on fire. So it was a, it was the biggest decision of, of my life. And I, you know, one day he just said, look, you know, kind of what would it take? And they had separate store structure from a digital structure. And I just said, you know, if you, if you want to combine all of that so that you have, you know, one customer experience and you want to overlay that. And I don't remember exactly the word I used, but if you want to overlay that with your philanthropic efforts, meaning that if you want to be do something that is even more responsible, you know, for communities, et cetera, I said, then that would have to be something I would seriously consider. And, and, and from there, the conversation pivoted. And so I went in to Apple as a calling. I didn't go in, you know, I told Tim a number of times. You know, I can find you a great COO to run the stores. I'm not an operator. If you want a new vision, if you want to, you know. And so I, I took Apple as a calling and I, I went in. I really wanted to pick up where Steve left off. I never met him, but I had such admiration for what he built and why he built it and how he did it. And I just, I, uh, tremendous respect for it. So you know, in meeting with Johnny and then Johnny introducing me to Foster's and, and so, and they were all involved, you know, and then the company had gotten so big. So we were able, but then we had to create a whole new in-store experience. And that experience could actually be the way that Apple gave back to the community. And it could tie in education. It could tie in enriching lives. And then it was so interesting to me because Apple has hardware and Apple has incredible software, but I would go into the stores and the hardware, the, the design of the store was great, but there was actually no software in the store. There was not an intentional experience other than maybe at the Genius Bar. But other than that, it was a place to buy something, but you could buy it cheaper, faster online. And so, so that's when we really went on a mission to come up with what should the software of the store be? And, and maybe it should have a direct connection to what everyone was already doing on their devices and they would trust Apple to teach them. So if it's the number one camera in the world, then how do we bring that into the store? And maybe we can have photography classes and teach people you know, how, to, how to do that better and, and, and what apps and software to use. And, you know, and down the road, maybe that becomes a career for them. And the same thing with music. There's Apple Music and everyone's you know, doing that on their phone. So they own GarageBand. They own all of this software. So how do we bring that into the stores and teach kids about music, how to compose music, how to. And so we just took everything people and we just brought it in and we said, this is the software of the store, all educating, all classes and uh and so, you know, by the time I left, they were teaching 80,000 classes a week. In the first year, they taught three and a half million kids the basics of coding because they owned, again, their own coding, Swift. And, and so, so it was, and I, I always said that the retail, the retail store should be the lightning rod. That should be where the best of Apple comes together in the greatest, you know, 3D experience, if you will. Online's very 2D. You can go there for deep learning. But you go into the store for human interaction and, and, to, and to learn and to, um, to connect and to be inspired and to unlock your creative thinking. And if you want to go deeper, then we always said that's where the app came in. And the app should be the greatest 4D experience, more immersive using AR and the new technology so that each one of them had a purpose. Yeah. Dot com, the best 2D, deep learning physical retail, 
3D human connection, different type of inspiring education. And then the app was where we would use all of the new technology. So that was kind of how we approached it. That's a, that's a pretty compelling and, and yet very clear vision laid out in about one and a half, two minutes. So you mentioned when Tim called that one of the triggers was also, let's say, the philanthropic or the societal impact overlaying that whole experience. We at the Institute, the Institute is all about helping growth leaders shifting their company's focus from short-term value creation and profit maximization for shareholders only to longer-term value creation for all stakeholders, including, by the way, the shareholders, but more as an outcome rather than as a prime objective. We, we, the word we use for that is humanizing growth. Now, I, I want to talk to you about humanizing growth and leading the change towards humanizing growth. One thing you told me uh, earlier on uh, when we talked is that... Um, at Burberry's, uh, you decided very early on, you were stopping all conversations with investors on a local level. And also, even on a, on a global level, that the time spent on investors, uh, you cut down, if I remember well, to two times per year. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. As the CEO. But we had, we had very amazing head of investor relations. We had a very powerful CFO. And, and I just had to balance my time, right? And so, because I think everyone has, when you're in a turnaround or in, you're in a high growth business, everyone has a very specific role and you have to divide and conquer. And I didn't need to, we did that with investors. We did that with the press. So I said, Christopher should do all the fashion press. Stacy, the CFO should do all the business press. And I didn't even do any local press. I said, Twice a year when we do our half yearly, then I will do international press only because we are a big global business. And I'm mostly interested in the investors because the investors push many other CEOs, clearly not you at the time, to actually be there every quarter, not only globally, but also in all of the key markets. You didn't do that. No, I did the first year as we were getting the strategy and the vision out. Yeah. But then, and, but I was also very clear. And I said, we're playing the long game. I'm not playing a quarter by quarter game. I'm not going to do it. So, you know, we had a five-year strategy. We articulated very clearly what we were planning on doing, all of the growth businesses, the geos, the categories, everything. And I said, and I'm not, you know, and some will work, some won't work, but we, there's a brilliant CFO. They will update you on, you know, every everything on the quarterly but I'm not, you know, for me to sit there with hundreds of people and, you know, we didn't do it. So twice a year, I would do big road shows. We'd go to New York. We'd go, you know, to all the different and I would hit all of them. And but I also think it's really important. You know, I think the most frustrating thing with me with investors was they only look at the numbers and the numbers were only the outcome. Yeah. They're only the outcome of a great strategy. And they don't ask about culture. They don't ask about your leadership team. So what we started to do was I said, if I'm going to meet with investors twice a year, we're going to do it the way that, that I'd like to do it. So we started creating videos. So we had like, and I made them sit there and watch a three minute video before I would ever have a conversation with them on the numbers. And it had our music and it showed everything around the world that we did. And it was all the way from distribution and shipping to new stores, to new categories, to Burberry Acoustic Online. And it was a video highlighting all of the achievements of the team. And oh, by the way, because we did this, now let's look at the numbers. But I just, I, I just, you know, how I just- they, How did they respond to that? How did they react? Was that- did you have to fight for that? Did it get a lot of pushback? I mean, you know, ironically, I had to fight with my own team at first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like, well, why are we doing this? Why? But once they saw the reaction, because it just started the meeting out on a whole different level. And then they were kind of like, wow, we had no idea. Well, of course, you didn't have any idea because you're not reading all of the little details. You're not reading a 300 page annual report to see everything that happened. So I just thought it was so vital to share the journey, you know, in, in a way. And then the interesting thing is we ended up using those investor videos 
to the 11,000 employees around the world. And then they ended up even getting out because the employees would share them with family and friends. So the irony is these videos that we actually had created for one stakeholder actually were tremendously relevant and inspiring for all stakeholders. To your internal audience, you can, you can you know, explain and articulate the greatest vision, but the fact that you're saying it to the outside world, to your investors, makes it e even more credible, is a stronger reason to believe. If you're saying it outside, then probably you're quite serious about it, and, and therefore it's probably even more powerful inside. So you're, you're on the board of companies and so on. Why isn't every CEO doing what you did? It sounds so logical. Why, why do all these CEOs experience it and give in to that enormous pressure to focus on the next quarter and, and mostly that? Yeah, I think it's a combination. I think, that, um, I think that probably most CEOs were not CMOs or were not merchants. Most of them come from finance or operators. And so that's more their comfort zone. Um, and that's not a negative. They're running gigantic corporations, et cetera. But I think where you have those CEOs that that got in, take 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 a Mark Parker when he was at Nike, right? Yeah. Phil put him in. And so he was a very different type of a CEO. And, and he looked at it product first and customer first. And, and so I think that there are, I think it all depends on the CEO and it depends on your vision for the company and, 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 and also the state of that company. Realize that we were a turnaround. I mean, we yes. were, you know, and so, so we really had to pivot and we had to, to do it with such clarity. So I, so I think that every company is different. I think it's hard to, but I also think it's how, how the CEO is wired and what's important to them. That is how I communicate. Storytelling and the narrative and, you know, and we're humans, right? we're humans, we look each other in the eyes, we, we listen, the inflection in our voices, music, I mean, things that move us and inspire us. And so, you know, I, and, and so we were able to create those things. And, and honestly, it was a huge part of the turnaround of Burberry, leveraging every single medium that we could. And of course, we were on the brink of, you know, of Twitter and Facebook, you know, our timing with all of that opening up as well. So, but, but we, we, we were one of the first to really create that incredible content and leverage all of those mediums that were relatively free at that point. We were just amplifying and taking full advantage of everything that we could. It's different at every company, you know, then you go into an Apple and it's like, okay, but what I did start doing at Apple, I learned at Burberry is I did a video every week at Burberry, every week to 11,000 team members, letting, you know, just, and it was, you know, YouTube was really taking off. So it was three thoughts in three minutes or less. And we always thought of it like a YouTube video and we shot it from an iPhone at Burberry. So then I go into Apple and they're telling me, oh, you need to send an email. You, when I started, there were 55,000 employees on my team. And I thought, send an email. And then they would translate it in 30 languages. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I have a better idea. We're going to use a phone and we're going to, you know, and yeah, it really threw them though, because I mean, Apple had not really done that before. So I started the same thing. I started doing videos and I started talking to the 55,000 and, you know, they would, use, they would translate it, et cetera. But the connection that that started to build, you know, then when you would go into a store, you know, they felt like they knew you. I mean, it, and it was very authentic. It was like, I'm talking to you. And I would, and I would always thank them. And I would always share with them, you know, things we were working on or important, you know, new platforms we were building for them, et cetera. And then we started within six months, we said, we're going to do a huge crowdsourcing exercise. We want all of you to play. And, and we're going to ask you one question. And, and over the next couple of months, you're going to help us create the new in-store experience. So, I mean, I actually think it was the largest internal crowdsourcing exercise. I had to bring a little outside company to help. But we ask every employee all over the world, what do you feel Apple should be doing more of in your community? And they would get together, and you can imagine, thousands of things came in. 
And then we'd send it back out and they'd sharpen it, but they were working together. The stores were working together. And by the time it was all done after a couple of months, we edited it down to eight things that they felt Apple should be doing more of in their community. And that helped shape and inform the whole new in-store experience. So they were on the journey with us. They were helping create it. And, and so to me, you know, whether you're a CEO, whether you're, you know, companies need to be flatter. I don't believe in a hierarchy. I believe that they know more than I know. You know, they're, they know they're working with customers. It's their community. And I think in the future, I don't, I don't, I think, you know, we used to say, we said at Apple, I said, we're going to turn ourselves upside down and we're going to turn ourselves inside out. Upside down because you're going to help shape the strategy and inside out because we need to do a lot more for the communities. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, 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 I mean, that's almost like a mass engagement in a very personal way and people feel ownership of, of the end result. That's, that's very powerful. I mentioned the humanizing growth, right? The, 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 the multi-stakeholder value creation for the long term. What in, whether it's in your current board roles or in, at Apple, Burberry's or before, what have you experienced as the biggest blocker to that? What's the biggest blocker to actually focus on the long term and the value creation for all stakeholders, your own people, the colleagues, your consumers, customers, the communities in which you operate and the capital markets? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would have to say, I think the biggest blocker, honestly, is just short term reporting. That's you the know. Okay. it really is. You Just, gave a very compelling alternative to that. And, and I hope uh, all viewers uh, have taken note of that because I could not agree more that that's, and it's still, I mean, it's in all of these companies that we engage with, short-term focus, quarterly reporting consumes way too much time of CEOs mm -hmm. where they have some the great CFOs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I, I, but I think the onus is also on boards. You know, I mean, at Airbnb, I remind Brian Chesky almost every week that it's his job to dream. You know, him and Joe and Nate, they're the visionaries. They need, you know, they are so big today. And, you know, Brian, keep dreaming, keep pushing it, keep, you know, I don't, they're public now. There are great people that, you know, can, ha can handle all of the quarterly stuff, but there's only, there's only a couple of founders they're going to dream of what the future is and where it needs to go and what has to, and, and that's how they'll win. And, and so it's a real balancing act between encouraging the leaders to keep innovating and moving forward while you're, of course, you know, behaving responsibly as a big public company. But it's a real balancing act. Like to your point, you can shift way too much focus over here and then you're not innovating. You're not moving forward at a pace that you need to so much more than ever before and it's and that's not going to slow down yeah. yeah it's it's funny if i hear you talk i i must say i hear more than anything i hear a marketer talk so 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 let's talk about let's talk about marketing and and your expectation of marketing i want to give you three choices and and just choose one or the other and then at the end you can select one that you say i want to actually give some more explanation of why i chose that one if you want to drive more humanized growth, do you leading by example for the, from the front or staying in the background and, and empowering others? It's, a, it's a combo. It's actually not an either or. You have to lead from the front, but you have to empower others. But I think everyone wants to be led. Everyone wants to know where we're going and why we're going there. And then, then you step out of the way and you empower the teams to move forward, et cetera. I don't think it's perfectly one or the other. It's, it's more a sequence. You start with the vision, you lead from the front, and then clear. More focus on internal stakeholders or more focus on external, external stakeholders? More focus on internal to start, always. And bringing along others. Use the carrot or use the stick? Always the carrot. Good, good. Anyone that you, any of these that you care to, uh, to say more about? You know, it's like you said, we're in the human business. And I think that 
everything we do, everything, you know, it's funny. I, one of the nonprofit boards I'm on is Paul Pullman's Imagine Board. Yeah. And, and I joined it because it is so aligned with how I see a company's responsibility in their community, et cetera. But you're in the human business and, and you have to unite humans to make a greater impact for humans. I mean, it's just, it's not rocket science. And then you have to behave like a human, not a robot. You have a heart. Your teams have a heart. You know, they want to feel you. You know, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And, and, and I'm just, I'm just constantly amazed that, that leaders don't understand that, you know, people want to be led and they want to trust you. They want to feel you and they want to be a part of a team. They want to be a part of something bigger than any single individual thing. Right. And, and if you can get that going, you know, one of the, one of the things that we, you know, talked to Paul Pullman's group would imagine is it, it, you know, I long for the day when it's not just a profit and loss statement. I long for the day when it's a people and impact statement. You know, when we reward companies for promoting and hiring, not for laying off, right? You lay off thousands and your share price goes up. That's great for the community. So, you know, I just, I think that, you know, but I think we're getting there. I think that by the things that you're doing, by, you know, focusing on on the human side of it. And I believe that companies have a much bigger responsibility to play. It is not, it is not, it is not just about profit anymore. And I think this is all coming out in ESG, et cetera. So you're on the board of WPP, the biggest marketing uh, company in the world. Um, so and in your board role, do you talk a lot about ESG at, at WPP? Yes, absolutely. On every board. I mean, I think the wonderful new, you know, we used to talk about CSR and now it's been rebranded ESG. And, and I think that that's fine. And, and there's a lot of talk on the environment and, and everyone's created their sustainability committees. And so I think there's a lot of traction there. And, you know, from a governance standpoint, I think there's a lot of traction there and, and people kind of know what the marching orders are. And it's interesting. I think the S in the middle is the one that's still not perfectly clear. I think, you know, diversity and inclusions going yep. in there, which is wonderful. But, you know, now, as I sit on the chair of Save the Children, I actually say that, no, I think the companies need to report so much more in there. You know, how are you partnering with NGOs? What? Okay, fine. You're doing all of this on the environment, but you've already helped destroy it. So what else are you doing under the yes? How are you leaning in? And, and how are you contributing, whether it's financial or human capital? What are you doing under the S to, to make an impact? And that too can be measurable. And whether that's a local community, whether that's partnering with a bigger NGO to do you know, things where your factories, and I mean, there's, there's, there's so much under there that I, and I think it's the biggest, I think it's one of the biggest unlocks in the future and uh, I would say, you know, it'll be great. We'll have this incredible environment, but we won't have, you know, <laughs> we won't have sustainable communities, et cetera, to live in this wonderful environment unless we start shifting the focus over to what our social responsibility is, you know, for the S as well. And again, isn't it so that marketing specifically has a tremendous role, a tremendous almost responsibility, I'd say, to step up on that specifically on that S. Absolutely. To me, it's a, it's almost a gift. It, I mean, it's, it's right in, it's, it, 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 it is, it is, it is, yes, absolutely what marketers need to focus on. And it's what it's, and it's what customers want to hear. It's why, you know, it's, it's, yes, they want to know about the environment. Yes. They, but they also want to know what you're doing. You know, how are you making an impact? I think that's been a huge part of Unilever's success over the years. You know, but there are not a lot of Unilevers that are, have been leaning in like that and partnering like they have to make the impact. And so, like I said, companies are leaning in on the environment and I think they need to be just as diligent. And I absolutely think the marketers can help define and outline and measure and report on what that is. 
Interesting. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, when we started our, our growth study, that's the basis of the Institute, one of the insights was that, or one of the, actually the reasons to start, was that many CMOs of very, very large companies, I mean, like the, the biggest advertisers in the world, complained about losing influence at the growth decision-making table. And, uh, and actually quite a few were being replaced or had to report to a CGO, a more commercial chief growth officer. So if you, with that in mind, is now a good time in your mind to be a marketer? I think it's probably the greatest time in history to be a marketer. But I think that you have to get a bit out of your lane because I think marketing, marketing has gotten so broad market. And, and to me, I don't even really like the word marketing. To me, it's building a lifelong relationship with every stakeholder. And that is your job, right? It's not, and, and that is socially, traditionally, right? That, and, and that includes internal, the culture, that's communication, that's marketing, that's internal marketing. So I think with this whole stakeholder approach, that if CMOs stay too narrow in the old fashioned way, but if they, if they decide to broaden and to think of all stakeholders and their, their, their job of building this incredible relationship with each one of those, I think that, and I, and I personally believe, I personally believe that the future CEOs will be the world's greatest CMOs. I really do. Because it is about, to your point, humanizing, connecting, building a relationship. And the CMO should be able to do that better than anybody in the company. But I don't, I think, again, they've stayed in their lane. You report to the CEO. But what are you doing with all of your peers? What are you, you know, and I just think the more you broaden your own horizon and you look at those stakeholders, all is your responsibility, I I think you're setting yourself up on a path to be an incredible CEO because I think I think those left brain right brain skills are what will be needed to drive great companies as they look ahead and as they still drive for results it's that real balance that and I think that CMOs are some of the one of the few that have that mind or are wired wired like that but I think that I think they have to broaden and step up since I could not agree more, and, and, and if I look at the CMOs that I consider to be really successful, and actually some of them did get the CEO role, they have they have very strong financial and especially business acumen. They, they're real business leaders. So it is about the depth, real in-depth business understanding, the drivers underneath the choice for a specific business model, if that's a play. Uh, at the same time, broaden that scope with all the stakeholders, be the voice of all these different stakeholders. That's a great opportunity and, and, and a great challenge at the same time. But it can be done and we need more of them, right? I think so. I think so. I think, again, the world's moving fast and innovation and technology and all that's enabling. I just, I think that and I think you need a real balance of, of right brain and left brain, I, that, that those instincts and that innovation and creativity and empathy. But to your point, combined with that operational and financial expertise, you need that, that real balance. And, you know, I, I, I learned years ago, there's only 9% of the people in the world that are actually wired that. So, so a lot of it's learned and studied and but I think the CMOs are, it's one of those few positions in the company where you're exposed and you have the ability to, to, to get that balance. And, and I don't, again, I don't know how a company stays on the forefront. You know, one of the reasons I love Airbnb is, you know, Brian and Joe both graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design. They're creatives, right? They're visionaries yeah. and they have high empathy. That's why the whole concept was built around belonging. And so, Right. And then you build a team around them. But then Brian's taught himself the other side of the business. So but he uses his instincts first. And I think it's companies like that that will, yeah. you know, isn't that what Steve Jobs did? I mean, I. 
You know, otherwise, I don't know how you stay on the forefront if you're not really looking out and, and feeling where the world's going. Yeah. And, and, and isn't that also one of the, you know, nicest things to be spending your time in and, and focusing on rather than indeed do those quarterly investor <laughs> meetings in every key market? Angela, we're almost at the end. I have a few closing questions for you. One is 50 years on. What has become of the dreams that you mentioned you had as a teenager? Again, Frank, I'm just incredibly grateful because my, my life has been beyond my wildest dreams. I didn't dream this big. I'm just, I'm just a girl from a small town in Indiana. But I let purpose overtake me. And I let, I let people and... And, and their partnership and their trust, you know, inspire me and, and teach me. And, and everything I've done has been because of people. N none of it is me. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. It has been just an incredible, I've been honored to, to really partner with incredible, incredible people that have enabled me to dream and have been a part of that dream. And, and then together, we've been able to do incredible things. So yeah. Now I just dream. Now I dream that I can, you know, with save the children. I dream I could make an even bigger impact. I dream that I can use all my gifts and my skills and and just shift focus and and do it in an even bigger, different way now. So yeah, it's 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 a really there's almost like a paradox in you. On the one hand, you know, the small but rooted, very human person and on the other hand the big dream and purpose and I think the fact that you connect these come across as a, as, as a great uh, as a great way to to lead uh, thank you for sharing all that I'm really grateful thank you I loved it and have a really beautiful wonderful day thank you thank you so much bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.